You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW TalkNet. Hi, everyone. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update here on social media. Thanks, as always, for joining us. There is a lot to talk about. We have the Lisa Page, Peter Strzok testimony finally being released. We have new doc or new lawsuits that we filed for information on a deep state conspiracy or coup against President Trump. A great new court ruling about FBI cover-ups, uh, pushing back on the FBI cover-up of this deep state conspiracy. And then, of course, the Hillary Clinton email scandal continues, and Judicial Watch has begun taking testimony of Clinton email uh, witnesses. But first up, I think I'll talk about the uh, news that uh, is the result of a release of information or testimony by uh, the chair, I should say, what is it, the minority leader of the House Republican uh, portion of the Judiciary Committee. So the Judiciary Committee is now run, obviously, by the Democrats on the House side. And Congressman Collins is the ranking member on the Judiciary Committee. And he's begun releasing testimony of the various witnesses who have testified to the House over the last year or so about the deep state conspiracy against President Trump. Uh, Congressman Collins, who frankly I've never heard of before until he became a ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, has taken some important steps in bringing transparency to what Congress has been doing. Because what had happened is they had taken this testimony of people like Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, Bruce Orr, uh, Christopher Steele, I think, Glenn Simpson, people like that, but it hasn't been released to the public because what has happened is that the Republicans last year sent it over to the Justice Department just in case there was classified information in there that the Justice Department or the FBI wanted to hold back. And uh, it turns out uh, they just sat on it. The Justice Department and the FBI hasn't re- authorized the release of any of it, even though it's pretty clear much of the testimony uh, doesn't concern classified matters. In fact, uh, it was the testimony was geared to avoid discussion of classified matters. So uh, the Republican minority has had enough, and they started releasing the documents. And they're not waiting for the Justice Department uh, because they're obviously in cover-up mode, as they've been uh, throughout the entire Trump presidency when it comes to protecting the deep state conspiracy against President Trump. So last week he released Bruce Orr's testimony, and this week he released Lisa Page's and Peter Strzok's testimony. And I have here, uh, this is what Lisa Page's testimony looks like. And what it does, the testimony is confirmation of uh, this uh, illicit, illegal effort to destroy President Trump. So this testimony here is, in my view, evidence of a crime. It's evidence of a crime, uh, and who's the victim of the crime? President Trump, because you had people like Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, who evidently, or excuse me, by their own admission, couldn't stand President Trump, opposed his candidacy, uh, sending text messages back and forth about, uh, we hope that Trump loses, uh, he, hope he can't win, will he win? No, we'll stop him from winning, uh, Peter Strzok wrote. Uh, he has an insurance policy in case he, want, he ran. And the mission is, in this testimony, that the insurance policy indeed was uh, the Russia investigation. Uh, Lisa Page testified, for instance, that Peter Strzok uh, saw 
impeachment as a career goal uh, if he were to stay involved in the Trump-Russia investigation. And also there's admissions that they had nothing, absolutely nothing to justify uh, going after President Trump or then candidate Trump with this spy operation. Now they had tips, uh, but certainly nothing substantial enough uh, to conclude that Mr. Trump or his campaign was colluding with the Russians. It's pretty clear that's in the testimony. So this testimony confirms that the text messages that were anti-Trump text messages between Lisa Page and Peter Strzok, who you may recall was, were also having an affair at the time, uh, meant, the text messages meant what they said. They were anti-Trump and they were meant to be anti-Trump. Now what is their defense? Their defense is, well, just because we personally didn't think much of President Trump doesn't mean we abused our position to target him illicitly. Now, do you buy that? Because I don't buy it. I don't buy it at all. And uh, it just strikes me that um, how outrageous it is that the, uh, uh, despite all this evidence, that the Justice Department has allowed this investigation, tainted by this misconduct by people like Strzok and Page, have allowed that, that investigation into President Trump to continue. Because remember, Strzok and Page went into and uh, were key players in the Mueller investigation. And only after uh, these text messages came out as a result of an inspector general investigation uh, did Mueller bring Strzok in, according to Strzok's testimony that was released, and tell him he had to go. Now, of course, Mr. Mueller didn't ask Mr. Strzok, according to Strzok's own testimony, well, did you do anything inappropriate as a result of your bias against President Trump. He was never asked a question by Mueller. And isn't that interesting? So you have this evidence of bias by top FBI officials involved not only in the anti-Trump Russia investigation, but remember, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page were also running the Clinton email non-investigation. And Mueller's investigation was just allowed to proceed as if nothing happened. And if the Justice Department was being honestly run, there's a train coming by, as you can hear, they would have shut the Mueller investigation down due to the prosecutorial misconduct uh, related to the FBI agents uh, that uh, had it in for President Trump. Because, how, you know, and it explains a lot. Of course, we knew these text messages were out there. Uh, so there's really no way around them. So uh, to read the testimony, you see they try to defend the indefensible. But it explains why it is that this Trump investigation was allowed to proceed despite having no evidence, despite it being tainted by this dossier that was the result of the, a Clinton DNC uh, paid opposition research effort, despite Christopher Steele uh, breaking the rules of the FBI and being fired as an informant, despite Christopher Steele improperly communicating with Bruce Orr, Bruce Orr improperly communicating with Christopher Steele, whose wife was a colleague of Christopher Steele, worked for, Bruce, uh, for Fusion GPS, Nellie Orr. So why, given all of that corruption, was, it a lot, was the administration, uh, was the, was the uh, there's a phone ringing up there, why the uh, Mueller investigation was allowed to proceed. I don't understand it. And it's explainable because of the act, uh, because um, you had an anti-Trump agenda there. 
because there was nothing to require, there was nothing behind the, uh, we're going to have to shut this phone down that's ringing now. Because there was not, this is the joys of doing a live update for you all. These distractions become distracting. There is nothing behind the, uh, there was nothing of substance behind the investigation. And how is that explained? How is, it, how is it explained that it was allowed to go forward? Anti-Trump bias. So to sum up, if you forgive me for getting distracted by the phone, we now know why this anti-Trump investigation was allowed to proceed despite having no evidence and despite all the corruption behind its formation. Anti-Trump bias. Because if it were anything else, anyone else being targeted, any, any other type of investigation that was being run on the up and up, it would have been shut down. And this is why the Mueller operation needs to be shut down. And as I've said before, and it looks like the president has tweeted this as well, there should be no Mueller report. So we're going to allow uh, Robert Mueller uh, and his partisans that he's hired, Andrew Weissman, the number two, who evidently is leaving. The Judicial Watch uncovered was an anti-Trumper who wrote an email to Sally Yates, the holdover Obama official who tried to thwart President Trump's travel ban. He was was all in support of that lawless act. And he also went to Hillary Clinton's election night party. So these folks are going to be allowed to write a, quote, a report on President Trump on top of everything that Peter Strzok and Lisa Page was doing? So this testimony confirms the corruption behind the Mueller investigation. That's ongoing. So it isn't like it's in the past. It's ongoing. Now, on top of that, uh, you have the testimony confirming that the Clinton email investigation was a sham, was corrupt, and was wired from the beginning. In the sense that the Justice Department, and this has been implied in Comey's testimony previously, so a lot of this we have elements we know about, but the testimony, you know, puts it uh, in black and white, uh, quite literally, when you read it, the, uh, that the Justice Department under President Obama and Loretta Lynch had zero interest in prosecuting Hillary Clinton, and they let the FBI know that. So that's why the FBI investigation was a sham, because they knew it was going to go nowhere. So sure, give immunity to everyone. Sure, ignore the, folk that, ignore the fact that documents were destroyed. Sure, ignore the fact that there are people who committed perjury. They were just going through the motions because it's confirmed the Justice Department told the FBI, and Lisa Page testified to this, uh, that they were not going to allow a prosecution under the Espionage Act. And of course, the other problem, the Espionage Act, which you can go to jail for mishandling classified information, either intentionally or if you do it as a result of gross, gross negligence. Now, they rewrote the law to pretend that gross negligence was not something you could be prosecuted over, even though they do prosecute people over grossly gross negligent handling of classified information. So the Justice Department rewrote the law to allow Hillary Clinton to get away with doing that, it looks like. And of course, she had the intent. But on top of that, the investigation was crimped. Because why was that the only aspect of the uh, email matter, as I like to say? Investigated. She took documents she didn't have a right to take. She did destroy government records she didn't have a right to destroy. 
The technical term is alienation of records, stealing records. And on top of that, it's the Clinton Foundation connection that they didn't want to look at as well. Peter Strzok confirmed that they had a deal with the Clinton lawyers that they could look at the Clinton Foundation server because the server Hillary Clinton's email server was on, her secret system was on, was shared by others, including the Clinton Foundation. And so they told the Justice Department and the FBI, well, they could look at the emails, but they couldn't look at Clinton Foundation material. So they agreed not to do that. Can you imagine Paul Manafort making that demand of the FBI? But it was Hillary Clinton, and as one of the text messages said, they thought she was going to be the next president, so they were treading carefully. So not only was Hillary Clinton protected for her email misconduct, the Clinton Foundation and the pay-to-play that Judicial Watch uncovered, not the Justice Department, not Congress, but Judicial Watch uncovered, through our lawsuits, showing that Clinton Foundation officials were, on behalf of donors and allies of the Foundation, getting favors from the State Department under Hillary Clinton. None of that was touched by the Justice Department and the FBI. Now, I know others have said since then the Foundation's being investigated. I don't see any evidence of that. It'd be a pleasant surprise if it were the case. But we all know what the indicia of a real investigation is. First of all, you hear the Clintons screaming about it, but you'd see grand juries, you hear witnesses being questioned, or they'd be complaining about being questioned. You'd know something serious was going on. And the question I have for Attorney General Barr is that we've got a demonstrated record that the Justice Department, under the prior administration, and frankly through this administration, has given Hillary Clinton a pass by ignoring the rule of law, by doing her favors, while at the same time illicitly targeting President Trump. What is the Attorney General going to do about it? Is he going to reopen the Clinton email issue? Is he going to allow the FBI and Justice Department finally to take a serious look at the Clinton Foundation? Is he going to shut down the Mueller operation? Is he going to prevent an abusive report from being written? That is the question for Attorney General Barr. Not, well, is he going to be transparent with the report? There should be no report. To me, that would be just another victimization of President Trump. As I said, he's a crime victim. And it's about time our law enforcement started treating him as such, as opposed to abusing him because they don't like him. And right now, the FBI and the DOJ is more concerned about protecting their own reputation and letting Mueller do whatever, the, whatever he wants to do as opposed to protecting the president, who is a U.S. citizen who deserves the protection of the law. No one's above the law, but no one's beneath the protection of the law. And that's the way the left, and frankly too many Republicans, think of President Trump, that he's beneath the protection of the law. Look, there were these Manafort, um, this week uh, on a related note, Manafort, Paul Manafort was sentenced to jail this week, and I think he was sentenced for a total, I don't know, eight years or so, it's about eight years. Now, he could, have say, he could have seen as many as 34 years. So what a significant blow to the Mueller special counsel operation. Now, they didn't specifically say they wanted 34 years, but they essentially endorsed uh, the higher ranges of the sentences that could have been imposed. 
There were two cases, one in Virginia that could have seen him go to jail for as long as 24 years, and one in District of Columbia who could have sit where he could have gone to jail for as long as 10 years on top of that. But instead, he was sentenced to about four years in each jurisdiction. And uh, the Mueller people uh, were essentially encouraging the courts to throw the book at him. And the judge in, in, in Virginia said, look, I'm not going to ignore other cases like this, and he's going to be sentenced accordingly. And the other judge, who was seen as someone not terribly friendly to Paul Manafort, she departed. Uh, she didn't, she didn't uh, throw the book at him either. So think of all the resources that were used to target Paul Manafort. And you would have thought he was the worst criminal since uh, someone from the Gambino crime family or something. It was essentially a tax fraud case. Yeah, it was essentially a tax fraud case. I know they had some uh, material in there about the Foreign Agents Registration Act. In my view, that was just an abusive prosecution. Absolutely abusive. You could make an argument he never really needed to register, but on top of that, the registration issues with Farah had almost always been handled administratively. But not if you're the former campaign manager for President Trump. Then they come after you with full full guns a-blazing. You know, I've made the point, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, one of the masterminds of 9-11, was nabbed 16 years ago. It's almost 16 years ago this month. And he's still sitting down in Guantanamo Bay. He still hasn't faced full justice. So as our federal government has spent 16 years lollygagging with, this ma- with one of the worst terrorists in, in, our, in the world ever, being unable to figure out a way to convict and execute him, as he probably should be, they're spending all these resources targeting Paul Manafort in an effort to make sure, frankly, to make sure that he would have died in jail. And I'm glad the courts uh, perform the role they should perform in terms of uh, providing a check on this abusive uh, prosecution of Paul Manafort. But the abuses continue. New York, uh, they're trying to prosecute Manafort on essentially the same charges, specifically with the idea that they want to still put him in jail in case President Trump pardons him. I mean, that's banana republic type of activity. I mean, that ought to be disturbing to you if you're a conservative, if you're a liberal, if you're a Democrat, if you're a Republican. And put, you know, and if you're a liberal, put your anti-Trump bias away and use your head and look at this from a constitutional perspective. This is not an issue about whether or not you like President Trump. It's whether or not you want our government to abuse some people and protect others based on politics. And I'm not talking about political favors. I'm talking about putting people in jail based on politics. Now, you may say, well, you know, Tom Fitton, you said you want Hillary Clinton to be prosecuted. You know, I want Hillary Clinton to be subject to a fair and competent criminal investigation. I don't know whether she should be prosecuted or not. 
I think the evidence is anyone else would have been prosecuted. But I can tell you that this Justice Department and the FBI have never done a fair and honest investigation of Hillary Clinton. And compare and contrast that with the maniacal investigation into Trump world. Now, Congress, you know, isn't going to do anything in this regard, in my view. The House is now controlled by the Democrats. They want to impeach the president, despite what Nancy Pelosi says. So it's up to, again, to Judicial Watch to do the heavy lifting. And to that end, Judicial Watch filed another lawsuit against the um, administration. You know, we've sued the Bush, we sued the Trump administration more than anyone else. I say that with 99% confidence. And sure enough, we had to sue to get basic information about a very important period of time in the Trump administration, when the first seditious conspiracy was discussed among senior-level officials in the DOJ and the FBI. Rod Rosenstein uh, talked about uh, invoking the 25th Amendment with Andrew McCabe. They talked about wearing a wire to the Oval Office to record the president, presumably to get evidence against him for this illegal and illicit invocation of the 25th Amendment. And out of those discussions grew the appointment of Robert Mueller, the special counsel, who should never have been appointed and should never have been appointed by Rod Rosenstein. So there was this period in May, I call it 10 days in May after the famous movie, between the 8th and the 22nd. On May 8th, Rosenstein wrote the memo to Trump, essentially telling him to fire Comey. He fired Comey the next day. And then they began the discussions, Rosenstein and McCabe did, uh, McCabe being a Comey acolyte, about how to overthrow the president. So what Judicial Watch did, we asked back in September of last year for records about any emails, this, I'll read you the FOIA, any and all emails, text messages, or any records or other records of communication addressed to or received by Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein between May 8, 2017 and May 22, 2017. So this was a very important period of time, but our request is very focused. How many emails and communications could have been received in that period of time? Not that many. And now it's September, October, November, December, January, February, March. Six months later, and we still don't have any documents, and we had to sue in federal court. So Judicial Watch, unlike Congress, who is yet to question Rod Rosenstein on any of these issues. Can you believe it? Rosenstein's on his way out the door. And Congress is yet to question him. He's made statements prevaricating through the Justice Department and directly about what he said and what he meant. But it's pretty clear these discussions took place as I described. This coup, this seditious conspiracy. And Judicial Watch is the one suing a court to get information about what went on. Judicial Watch is suing for the coup documents. Remember that. Judicial Watch also sued for, uh, speaking of um, coups, uh, Peter Strzok's material. Now, Peter Strzok uh, was removed, as I say, from the Mueller investigation. 
So we had filed a lawsuit against the Justice Department and the FBI. It's always kind of confusing because the FBI is part of the Justice Department, so you sue the Justice Department for FBI documents. Uh, But uh, we had asked for um, documents about his removal and, first of all, his placement and removal on the Mueller team, Peter Strzok's placement and removal on the Mueller team. All records regarding the assignment of FBI Supervisor Peter Strzok to the Special Counsel's investigation. All records related to the reassignment from the Special Counsel's investigation to another, invest- to another place in the FBI. And then we want the employment forms that are related to that. Pretty simple request. So this is what the FBI does. They only look at one bucket, even though they know there are a whole bunch of other buckets in terms of where the documents might be. And a federal court judge in the case that, uh, that we had to bring to get these documents uh, this week slapped back the FBI. And he said that the FBI uh, was wrong to narrowly uh, interpret the request and conduct a narrow search. And in a, a relatively rare move, he ordered the FBI to go back and do another search. Judge Cooper is the name of the court, uh, uh, Judge Christopher Cooper. He's a U.S. District Court judge here in the District of Columbia. And Judge Cooper called the FBI's search overly cramped. Notwithstanding that Judicial Watch's request referred to Mueller by name, the Bureau only searched for the term special counsel. But surely one would expect that Agent Strzok and other FBI personnel might use the special counsel's name Mueller rather than his title when discussing Strzok's assignment to the Russia investigation, especially in informal emails. Another logical variation on special counsel in its commonly used, is its commonly used acronym, the bureaucratic acronym, SCO, which appears to be used within the special counsel's office itself, as reflected by documents that the FBI uncovered and produced to Judicial Watch. Because they did the search, they gave us you know, around 15 pages of documents, We've talked about them here before. Those documents they did turn over to us show that uh, Strzok was adamant and very concerned that he keep his classification and declassification authority when he worked, went to work for the Mueller investigation, which is, which is weird in and of itself. But they didn't give us much anything else. Cooper also ordered that the FBI must conduct a new search that includes, quote, the email accounts of any of Patriot Strzok's superiors or other bureau officials who were involved in the decision to assign him to the special counsel's office or the decision to reassign him to the FBI Human Resources Division after his removal from the Mueller investigation. They only searched Strzok's email. They didn't look at anyone else. I mean, one of the biggest scandals in FBI and DOJ history, and they only looked at the one guy's email. If, you know, that's a corrupt search. Forget about it being insufficient. That's corruption. That's gamesmanship. The FBI must also expand its search to other forms of communications in addition to email. Given Strzok's well-known use of text messaging, the court writes... It strikes the court as reasonably likely that he discussed the assignment to the special counsel's office in text messages, which again is a standard for assessing an agency's selection of search locations, meaning you've got to look in places where they're reasonably likely to be documents. 
So I am so pleased that the court slammed the FBI for its gamesmanship, its gamesmanship in searching for the records about one of the most notorious FBI agents of all time, Peter Strzok. And the FBI leadership is in cover-up mode. I can tell you, you can see that by the corrupt uh, search they did. And I'm, uh, I'm happy that our lawyers, because we have Judicial Watch lawyers, I get to come on here and talk about all the great work our lawyers do. Uh, and our lawyers were able to convince the court that the FBI had done us wrong and the FBI uh, needed to be pushed back on this. And so thank, thank you to the court for doing this. We'll see what other documents we get. I'm sure we'll continue to get the runaround. But we're doing the work here because Congress isn't doing it. The media is covering up for Strzok and Page. They don't care about that. It's all about getting Trump. This is the, this is the corruption story of our generation, the effort to overthrow, the, overthrow President Trump, the effort to uh, destroy candidate Trump and spy on him. And Judicial Watch is going to deploy the appropriate resources to figure out what went on. And that's why we have over, well over 30 lawsuits right now on Page, on Strzok, on FISA, on Steele, on Orr, on unmaskings, on leaks, on General Flynn, on the Manafort raid, on the leak related to the Stone investigations. Remember this leak that uh, over the CNN, the, uh, the, uh, the seeming leaks that led to uh, CNN being outside the Stone raid, Roger Stone raid? No one else is doing that type of work. It's remarkable, and I, just, I say that as president of Judicial Watch, but it's remarkable the amount of work that Judicial Watch is doing to uncover all of this. And there are a lot of great journalists out there who are following this, like our friend Sarah Carter. Sean Hannity's doing some great journalism here, too. I know the media hates him, but he's, he's an he's a, he's a, uh, advocate for truth here. Chuck Ross at the Daily Caller, who we also represent the Daily Caller in efforts to get information out. John Solomon over on the Hill. Paul Sperry. Just a small group of us. But it's out of all of that, Judicial Watch is the only one going to court to get the information. You know, this week uh, is Sunshine Week, when all of the good government groups celebrate transparency in government. Now, of course, uh, we, don't have to, we don't have enough transparency in government. That's why we have to sue the administration all the time, no matter who the administration is. Congress is not, Congress over there, I'm pointing to Congress, is not subject to the Freedom of Information Act, or they don't subject themselves to the Freedom of Information Act. And further back, the Supreme Court, the courts aren't subject to the Freedom of Information Act. No transparency in the courts. There's nothing the courts do that you can sue them over in terms of getting documents from them about the way they operate. So there's that major transparency issue. But Judicial Watch is number one. We are number one on Freedom of Information Act. And how do I know this? There's a study that came out late last year out of uh, Syracuse University, 
the FOIA project of Syracuse University. And we are the number one filer of lawsuits in the country, manually, which means the world in terms of transparency. No one else does it. Between 2001 and um, July of 2018, Judicial Watch has filed, according to these documents, this study, 391 FOIA lawsuits. 391 FOIA lawsuits. So those of you who are supporting us, thank you, because we could not have done all that work without you. The next up after that is uh, ACLU. They filed 130. So we're almost three times what the ACLU did. And everyone else doing this, except one group, um, cause of action, they're all leftists. So only Judicial Watch is filing FOIA lawsuits from the conservative perspective in the sense that we're trying to uncover big government corruption. We understand where the corruption is. The left files FOIA lawsuits usually to expose um, that the government isn't spending your money, isn't spending enough of your money on enough people. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, uh, or, or approaching scandals from their perspective. And sometimes we agree with the ACLU on some of their lawsuits. We want the transparency too. But Judicial Watch obviously has conservative values, and that's why, uh, for instance, our deep state lawsuits. No one's, no one's doing that type of work that Judicial Watch is doing. Yes, there are media organizations that want some of the documents and have sued for some of the documents Judicial Watch has done, has sued over, but they only have a few lawsuits compared to the, as I say, the dozens of lawsuits that we have. So we're number one in FOIA. So, we, you know, it's rare that I get, you know, uh, get to rarely say that, but we are number one. And uh, it's thanks to your support, and obviously our investigative staff files the Freedom of Information Act requests. Uh, the, the lawyers follow up with lawsuits when, as often, they get ignored. And I say 391 lawsuits. That means we have at least 4,000 Freedom of Information Act requests because we only sue, I would say, about one out of every 10 requests. So there are a lot of other requests we haven't sued on. We are a FOIA machine at Judicial Watch, and we do it with your support. And if you're not supporting us, you can see uh, what your support would get you. It gets you action and accountability and justice and support for the rule of law. And along those lines, uh, I talked about the sham Clinton email investigation that's been further exposed this week. But it's Judicial Watch to the rescue again. Because Judicial Watch, as you recall, has been granted discovery by a federal court judge, Joyce Royce Lamberth, to get information on the Clinton email issue and the related Benghazi issue. Because the lawsuit that uncovered the Clinton email scandal was a lawsuit about Benghazi. We wanted documents on the fraud story that the uh, Clinton-Obama uh, group was putting out on Benghazi. And we noticed there were no Clinton emails. And our pressure resulted in the disclosure of the Clinton emails. And the judge wants to know in granting us discovery whether the, they tried to hoodwink the court in shutting the case down before, in trying to shut the case down before they admitted they had the Clinton emails, 
whether Hillary Clinton's system was designed to thwart the FOIA, and whether there are other emails that can be found. And he also specifically wanted to know if Benghazi was one of the reasons they didn't want to send the, give, look at the emails or tell us about the emails. So the court is curious about what went on. And that's why we've got this discovery that we've been granted. We've scheduled 10 witnesses for depositions. And it's begun. We deposed our first witness this week. Our attorneys flew up to New York and deposed Justin Cooper. Justin Cooper is the former Clinton Foundation employee who helped set up the Clinton email server working with Yuma Abedin. Now, Abedin testified to us. Yuma Abedin was the other State Department official close to Hillary Clinton who had an email, secret email account on that system. Abedin said she didn't learn about the server till later. Well, Justin Cooper's testimony contradicts his, hers. So his testimony isn't public yet, so, um, but we'll get it out once it is. So you learn about the Clinton sham investigation, but reassured there's a Judicial Watch investigation that until the Justice Department gets its act together, and we all know what the likelihood of that is, that will give you more information and more accountability on the Clinton email issue. March 14th, we have a deposition. We had the deposition. April 5th is the deposition of John Hackett, key FOIA official at the State Department. April 16th, Jake Sullivan, Hillary Clinton's former senior advisor and deputy chief of staff. April 23rd, Cheryl Walter, former Secretary, Department Director, State Department Director of the Office of Information Programs. Key FOIA person. Gene Smolansky, State Department lawyer. Monica Tillery, a State Department official. Jonathan Wasser who worked at the Clinton State Department senior office. He supposedly conducted the actual searches for records. Clarence Finney, the deputy director of the executive secretariat staff, again, that's the senior State Department secretary's office, was a principal advisor and records management expert in the office. Heather Samuelson, Hillary Clinton's lawyer, who helped facilitate the State Department's receipt and release of Hillary Clinton's emails and was also involved in the destruction of half the emails that Hillary Clinton took out of the State Department. And then there's Eric Boswell, State Department security official, who strongly advised that Hillary Clinton not use her system to communicate. And of course, Hillary Clinton ignored it. Remember the intent issue? There you go. And then there are individuals who have to, and these are all people that have to come in and be questioned by Judicial Watch attorneys in person. And then there are some witnesses that we've been allowed to send questions to that are written that have to be responded to under oath. And that includes uh, uh, Mr. Priestap, who's a top FBI official or was, who oversaw both the Clinton email and it looks like Russia investigations. Susan Rice, National Security Advisor Barack Obama, who went out and lied repeatedly about Benghazi. 
we get to question her? Ben Rhodes, who wrote the false Benghazi talking points for Susan Rice to use, former National Security Council advisor, official in the state Obama White House, he has to answer our questions under oath. We haven't forgotten about Benghazi, and the court hasn't forgotten about Benghazi. So I know it gets frustrating to hear that nothing's being done, but Judicial Watch is doing all the work here. And um, we're happy to do it. It's outrageous that we're doing it almost alone, usually over the objections of the State Department and the Justice Department and, frankly, the other agencies that we've been investigating. I mean, for instance, we had a court ruling, a negative court ruling this week. We had asked for unmasking materials by Ambassador Power, who was the UN ambassador for the State Department, uh, for Barack Obama, who allegedly had been engaged in a number of unusual unmaskings, which, is a tech, which is a way of saying that the individual Americans caught up in intelligence reports, or mentioned intelligence, in intelligence reports, were usually blacked out to protect their privacy. And it looks like the Obama gang was trying to, to uh, use these intelligence reports to figure out where uh, the Trump people were operating as it respects, uh, with respect to foreign intelligence. So if a Trump official name was being mentioned abroad, they wanted to get it. And why were they doing that? For nefarious reasons, I'm convinced. And the UN ambassador supposedly had this outrageous number of unmasking requests for this type of information of Americans who normally are not allowed to be spied upon by our intelligence services. It looked like the Obama people were using it like Google. So the State Department wouldn't confirm or deny any documents. Such documents were in existence. And the court upheld that. So this is where we stand. You get the agencies raising these classification issues, saying it's all classified, saying it's so secret that we can't tell you whether or not an Obama State Department official was asking for Americans to be unmasked from intelligence reports. Whose legal position is that? It's the legal position of this Secretary of State. I've said it once and I'll say it again. President Trump should call in these top agency officials, whether the Secretary of State, head of the DOJ, whatever, say, you need to be transparent. Stop taking this deep state approach to transparency. Stop pretending everything's classified when it doesn't need to be classified. I mean, we're hard charging in court, but when the government says something is classified, just because we whine and complain, that's not enough for a court to overturn an agency decision to keep something classified or in the case of this agency, the State Department, they say to even confirm or deny it would raise classification and intelligence issues and harm national security. It's difficult to get around that. So the agency officials running the show, there's the deep state, but the top state needs to take control. And we need a little help here. Congress needs to do its work, and the administration needs to do its work. 
because as I said, this is a threat to the Republic, this abuse of our intelligence systems, services, the abuse of the FBI and the DOJ to target innocent Americans like President Trump and his associates during the campaign, targeting which continued and probably continues to this day. So there are plenty of other lawsuits we're pursuing. I'll update you appropriately as we proceed. Uh, but there's a lot going on here at Judicial Watch. And thank you for joining us this week, and I'll see you next week. Enjoy uh, the weekend, and uh, for those of you fellow Irishmen out there, have a wonderful St. Patrick's Day. Thank you. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's weekly update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.